Thank you for joining us for our series through the Book of Romans. This book is full of rich truths about the Christian life, and we hope that throughout our study, your identity in Christ and our call to communitas are affirmed in you each week. Let's dive into the text. How are we doing, guys? Good? Good? Awesome. Um, who in this room in group projects were just the overachievers? Anybody? Okay. So I have to issue an apology on behalf of all of us who were the exact opposite of that, who were not overachievers, okay? So I, I don't know about you, I was like the procrastinator, like totally not an overachiever. Like you did not want to be in a group project with me. Anybody else like me in the room? A few? Okay, so we offer our apology. Well, my junior year of college, I am in Dr. Krogan's class. And Dr. Krogan was basically Dead Poet Society teacher in college. He was like my favorite guy because he had zero cares in the world. He was going to teach whatever he wanted to teach. It was fantastic, right? And so it's spring semester and I walk into Dr. Krogan's class and, and he gives us a syllabus and it's one page. That's it. He hands it to us and I'm like, yes, one page syllabus. That's it. Okay. And he goes, you have one thing that your entire grade is going to be based on. And he goes, your entire grade is going to be based on a class paper that you're going to write together on communication. I'm like, this is perfect. (laughs) I could not have asked for something more amazing than this. I'm like, it's baseball season. It's spring semester. I'm like, not going to show up to class anyway. Like, it's fantastic. Okay, so I'm on my way home from central Arkansas going to Louisiana on a bus, okay? And and it's like two or three months later, and I pull up my phone. I'm like, hey, I should probably check to see when this paper's due, okay? It completely slipped my mind. And I pull it up, and I'm like, the paper's due tomorrow. (laughs) I hadn't touched it. I hadn't thought about this thing in about like a couple months. And so I get home and I'm like, all right, like we got to crank out six pages, single space, let's do it. So I go to get to start typing. I crank it out in 30 minutes. Literally, I don't know if there was one coherent like sentence in the entire paper, okay? There was spell check, grammar, everything. So I get to class, I turn it in and, and, uh, and, and Dr. Krogan's like, hey, I'll see you in two weeks. That's when we're going to go through this paper together. Also, if you're a kid in the room, don't do this, okay? <laughs> Just to clarify, I should have said that first service. My daughter was in first service. So Charlie, I'm sorry. Um, but so I get in two weeks later and he walks in and I like have that sinking heart feeling like it's going to be the worst experience of my life right now. And he goes, hey, class, this was the best paper I've ever seen. He goes, you seriously need to go publish this paper. And I'm like, Woo! Like, I got an A. I crushed this paper. I'm like, look how amazing I am. I'm like, this is great. I'm going to be a published author. Where's my name going to go on the list? Like, it's going to be fantastic. I'm going to be like 30 under 30 in the state of Louisiana, which isn't that difficult, but hey, I'm still shooting for it at that point, okay? Like, I was like, this is incredible. I took credit for something that I really didn't do, or I really should not have taken credit on, right? And so I was unfaithful to my project, but you know who wasn't unfaithful to a project? All of you in this room who were the editors who like sifted through all of the papers. I was unfaithful, but there were people, the other people in my project were not unfaithful, 
And I wanted to take credit for something that I did not do. And we're going to see today in the book of Romans that the chosen people of God, the Jewish people, took credit for something that they did not do. But the beauty is, is that when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful for us. Here's my summary statement today. Paul is telling the Jewish listeners that though they have been chosen, they are still in need of Christ. Even when the chosen people of God are faithless, God remains faithful. God's righteousness and holiness are based upon who God is, not based upon anything his creation does. We will only find joy when we recognize our desperate and dependent need for Christ. And we're going to find that today. If you could open your Bibles with me, we're going to be in Romans 3, starting in verse 1. Whatever form, if you want to pull up your phone, that works too, even though my wife calls it a fake Bible. It's okay, though. That was a joke. All right. Um, Romans 3, starting in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be judged in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Would you pray with me? God, today we're reminded of your faithfulness. Today we're reminded of our unfaithfulness time and time and time again. And I pray for us in this room that we would be reminded that you are good. You are there. You are holy and perfect. And we are not. I pray that we would have other people in our life to be able to remind us of your faithfulness. And I pray that we would be the people who are sent today to live as those who are saved by your grace to be sent for your glory. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so we're going to see here the first part of this. We're going to see Romans 3, starting verse 1. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay? So God chooses the Jews, right? God's The Jews are God's chosen people. They are God's people. Now, I think when we think about choosing, we think about grabbing our buddy's condo or like lake house up in Tahoe and doing our fantasy football draft, right? That's not exactly what's happening here, okay? Because in those moments, in the moments of like fantasy football, we think, okay, I'm either choosing based on ability or I'm choosing based on preference. Like some of you in here drafted Cooper Cup one overall and he's not the best player in football, okay? Just because you're a Rams fan. Now, the reality of that is God is not choosing the Jews based on their ability and he's not choosing the Jews based on his, they're his favorite, He's choosing the Jews because he's saying, hey, you're the people that I'm going to show my glory through. It's about God's grace to them. It's about God's grace that flows through them, not based upon their ability. 
Now, these were the people that were given the oracles of God. We're not talking about San Francisco and my giants and Oracle Park over there. We're talking about the oracles of God. Which really means these were the people who were the possessors and guardians of these comprehensible signs to a world that was longing for a savior. They knew that they needed something, someone to save them. This redemption story in the history of the world. They realized that they needed redemption, yet they could not find redemption in themselves. And so the oracles of God were brought forth to say, okay, no one here has the ability to save yourself. Let me point you to the one who will save you. These are the oracles of God. We see that in circumcision. This is what they were marked by. The chosen people of God were marked by circumcision. Now, hopefully last week you picked up your DIY circumcision kits in the lobby after service. Like, I probably shouldn't have said that 945. Here we are though. Um, but, but really what that means is this was the symbol that they were counted as the children of God. They, they were, he does not allow them to become superior. See, the, the, what happens in circumcision is this is something that marks God's faithfulness to them, not something that they do on their own ability. See, this is the free mercy and the free grace of God. And this was a symbol to show God cared for his people. Now, what's the reality of the situation, though? Is that they were sinners. They were marked by their own sin. They got prideful in becoming what? The chosen people of God. They became proud and saying like, yep, circumcision, that's for me, right? Yep, the law, that's for me. There were sinners. That they, these were the people who said, hey, you need to follow the law when they didn't follow the law themselves. But, but notice this. Now, throughout the Old Testament... Time and time and time and time again, every single one of the prophets, the priests, and the kings, they were marked by what? Not their own ability. They were marked by God's faithfulness in their life. And time and time again, they were pointing everybody else saying, okay, there's a future Messiah that's coming. It's actually not about the Old Testament saints. Think about how they're described in Hebrews 12. It's not about their ability. It's about the faith that they had in the future Messiah to come. So this is what the chosen people of God were. And I think we think about chosen people of God and we think about like, even like back then, people think Christianity is one of two things. And back then, the chosen people of God were one of two things. They think, okay, there are some really strict rules and regulations to go by, right? Or they're like, yeah, I believe in Jesus in the same way that I believe in Santa Claus. Everything's relative. We're great. Okay? And both are an incomplete view. But a lot of our yet-to-believe friends think the exact same way. Let me tell you a little story. So Katie, my wife, and I, when she was engaged, we flew to Southern California and uh, spent some time with my, my side of the family. So uncle, grandparents, like Thanksgiving, right? And we're at the Thanksgiving dinner table. And like, if you could think of like a sitcom of all the things not to say on Thanksgiving, like at a dinner table with your family, that's exactly what happened. Okay. So my uncle's sitting there and he's like, man, Christians are great for the economy. Okay. 
<laughs> just out of nowhere, okay? And he's like, yeah, they're so shrewd. They do this, 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 this. And my like, grandparents like, whoa! Like, what do you mean just Christians? Everybody's here for the economy. And like, they just started this back and forth war. And my parents, grandparents like come to a point they're saying like, what do you mean? I can't believe Jesus and Buddha. And I'm like, how did we even get here? <laughs> the point is both sides are an incomplete view of the gospel. Both sides are, or what people think following Jesus is about. Because what the chosen people of God were accused of was the exact same thing. It's either rigid rules or freedom in whatever I want to think or believe. They really aren't that different from the rest of the world. But the reality is, is no matter like what side they fell on, or even like at times what, what side we fall on, God's character remains the same. It is not based upon our unfaithfulness. Read with me in verse three. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. See, so I think this text is actually really, really fascinating because we used the, we used the analogy last week of like, what is the role? Do you guys remember what's the role of the Christian to reflect the what? Sun, okay. 9.45, we got an extra hour of sleep. We're struggling this morning a little bit. All right, so, so the, the whole point of the, um, the moon is to reflect the sun, right? But, but what did Drew say? Not S-U-N, the S-O-N. There we go. We're waking up a little bit. I appreciate it, okay? So, so the whole point is to reflect the sun. But I want us to look at the difference in this text. Look at the difference of how God talks about the people and look at how God talks about himself. Like this is what Paul is saying. So, so he says some were unfaithful, right? But this isn't talking about like, okay, some over here were unfaithful. Like these people were real, real bad. Like these people were like close. They weren't quite, no. What he's talking about is this does not nullify God's faithfulness. It's talking about God's faithfulness, even when we are faithless. See, it's not about how good or bad the Jews were or how many were unfaithful and how many weren't. It's actually talking about, hey, regardless, God remains faithful. It does not nullify God's faithfulness. Notice next, it says, we, what? Sinners following the law. There were sinners for not following the law. They were, they were sinners because they did not want to follow the law. Now, I think the law is a really interesting concept and it's very difficult for us to understand, right? Okay, now let me explain it in this analogy. Now, anybody go trick-or-treating with their kids this week? Some of us in here, I got five, we're great, okay? So, now, my kids go trick-or-treating on Monday night and we get home. And if I told my kids hey, eat as much candy as you want. Indulge. I don't care. You want to eat Reese's with Jolly Rancher? Be my guest. Go for it, right? Now, what would happen? I'd have stomach issues a lot later. 
Katie and I would be up way too late for either one of us to comprehend. They'd be flying around the house and they'd be questionable for school the next day, right? The most loving thing that I can do is say, hey, let's have one piece of candy tonight. Understand when God gives the law, he's doing it out of love. He's not doing it out of a idea that we're, we're being taken away that it's not for our good. The law was given out of love. And, and, and I think like we see this in Romans 7, we're going to get there eventually, but the law is out of love. It's sort of like, hey, I care about you. But here's the reality. What happens in the garden? When God gives the first law, what happens? Like, hey, I want you to realize I am the creator God and you are my creation. Creation will flourish when it's under my rule and reign as creator God. And what happens? Hey, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There we go. Okay. So when God gives the law, what happens? Creation, Adam and Eve, me and you, and everybody in between says, hey, nope, I want knowledge the way that God has. I want to know what's good and what's bad. I want to be on the level playing field with God. And sin enters the world. See, the law is not the problem. It's what the law reveals in our hearts that's the problem. The problem is my sin. It's my nature to want to disobey God. And we don't like that because it reveals who we are. Right? And we see that next is that everybody is a liar at the end of this. And again, what is this talking about? It's talking about not that like, we're going to get into the specifics of how we are liars, but it's talking that God is remaining true. See, the beauty of this text is God is faithful even when we're faithless. God is true when we are liars because we need a God who is outside of ourselves in order to save us from ourselves. This is why it's so important that it's God is true and God's truth is not based upon who I am. It's based upon who he is. See, we need a God who is greater than ourselves in order to save us from ourselves. We need a God who is truthful. We need a God who is faithful. We need a God who is good because we will be faithless. We will be liars and we are sinners. And nothing about that or our unfaithfulness changes the faithfulness of God to us. He remains faithful. And notice the psalm at the bottom of this bottom here. It's this combination of Psalm 116, 11, and Psalm 51, 4, where David's basically saying, look, all mankind are liars in the first part of this. And then the second part, it's like, hey, look, but God, this is me who sins against you. It has nothing to do with who you are. See, nothing changes about God's character and nature here. God remains true even when we are not. And so we notice that with the chosen people of God, the Jewish people throughout history, the issue was not that they weren't good enough, although they weren't. The issue is they wanted to take credit for something they didn't do. They wanted to take credit for something they had no business taking credit from. See, this is what... This is what we are able to understand is that when we hit our lid on our ability, it's actually an opportunity for us to trust God more. Now, I am a huge baseball fan, if you don't know that by now. 
Um, but Aaron Judge, anybody know that name? A couple of us in here, okay? He just set the American League record for home runs in a season, okay, with the New York Yankees. Now, he is a free agent this year, okay? Now, he has like a historical year. Like he is one of the best players to ever play the game of baseball, okay? That's how like good he was this year. Now, he gets to the postseason and he hits a slump, okay? He couldn't hit water if he fell out of a boat sort of slump, okay? Like that's how bad he was. Now, he was so bad, he's a Yankee, that his own fans, after having a historical season, start booing him in the postseason, okay? Now, as a Giants fan, I'm like, keep it up, guys, because the reality is, is when he hits his lid on his ability in the postseason, it's an opportunity for my Giants to sign him this offseason, right? Right? So understand, understand that like desperate independence as we rely upon God is not based on our ability. It's actually what happens when we hit the lid on our ability and we realize I can't go anywhere else. It's a trust. Because even when we realize, or maybe when we don't realize that we're not being desperate dependent, we use the stool analogy as well. When we have that one cheek faith, When that takes place, the beautiful thing is, is God still remains fully righteous and fully good to us. See, what Paul's doing here is he's drawing out this hypothetical argument. He's saying like, hey, look, everybody, I'm I'm answering questions or I'm answering questions with more questions because I'm like, this is a ridiculous argument, right? That's what Paul's saying here. Like, let me just answer more questions with questions. Because it's silly to think that our unrighteousness dictates God's righteousness. That would mean a God that would be solely based upon ourselves, which, look, I make a pretty crummy God, right? We in this room make pretty crummy gods because we try and do it every single day. See, the reality when we hit the lid on our ability, when we realize our unrighteousness, it drives us to humility. It drives us to a place to humble ourselves, to realize, okay, God, you are the creator, God, and I am your creation, how you intended me to flourish. Because God doesn't need any of us in this room, but he still chooses to use us and love us for his glory. That's the good news. See, see, God's glory is displayed in the despair of his people. God's glory is not displayed in the success of his people, but the despair of his people. God's glory is not displayed in the accomplishments of his people, but in the despair of his people. See, humility is a humble surrender to remember who God is and who we are before a right, perfect, holy God. Because our pride says, I want to be the creator. Humility says, God, you are the creator and I'm your creation. But but I'm a little afraid. In a community like ours, it's so easy to say, God, I will only take the gospel if the comforts come with it. I'll only take your good news as long as I can have the comforts, 
that come with, hey, I'm not gonna give up the car or the house or anything like that. And that's not the gospel. It's not giving up those things. But it is saying, God, use me for your glory, whatever that may look like. See, the reality is, is we care more about the comforts far often in our life, more than we care about our creator. But, but here's the reminder. When we are unrighteous and we, and we tell God, my better is better than you, God, he reminds us that his better is better for us. See, our unrighteousness doesn't take away from God's righteousness. When we are sitting over here and we're saying, hey, I've got to do this, 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 and, and this is what's going to structure my life in order to be good. Yeah, I'm going to check the box to go to church. I'm going to, I'm going to try and live this good, moral, happy life. When we're over here and we say, I've got this all figured out, God is gracious enough to say, hey, it's not about you being better. It's about you realizing who you are and who I am because his better is better. And, and Paul's going to talk about this hypothetical argument even more. The next question that we see is that Paul's going to talk about, hey, people can be unrighteous, right? This is the question that he's got. Can people be unrighteous to serve, serve to show the righteousness of God? Can we sin so that God can be glorious and all that stuff? And what, what's Paul saying? He's saying like, by no means. It's like quoting, in a sense, Romans 6, which we're going to eventually get to. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. See, here's the thing. Just because we don't think sin is sin doesn't mean sin isn't sin. Sin is still sin no matter what relativistic idea that we have. Sin is still before a holy, unrighteous God saying, I want what I think is better than what you have for me. That doesn't change. And the reality of that is like, when we say that, when we want to step on the throne of our heart, we are subject to his wrath because he is fully perfect. He is fully creator God and we are not. We are his creation and yet we want to say, nope, I've got this figured out. I want to be the creator God. We're subject. See, see the reality is, is that he is subject to his perfect character. We, he is not subject to our imperfect character. We are subject to him. See, the chosen people of God don't get a free pass just because he chose them. Just because we check the box and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, or yeah, I follow Jesus, whatever that may look like, does not, in the same way that I believe in Santa Claus, does not mean we get a free pass. It's not a free pass to sin because it's going to be used by God. And it's not a free pass to just get into heaven. See, believing in Jesus is not this idea that I can just, yep, check the box, I'm good, I can do whatever I want. 
Believing in Jesus is always an invitation to trusting that God's better is better. It's an invitation to humble ourselves continually and constantly confess who we are. God does not need your good works. He wants your brokenness because he is perfect. See, God's condemnation is always just. And why is God always just in his condemnation? Because we willingly disobey God. We love to disobey God. This is who we are. We do not love the things of God on our own. We love the throne of our heart. And the reality is, is is this relativism or this duty-driven living, both are incomplete because both say on flip sides, I'm the one who dictates it. I fully dictate what I'm going to do or not do, and I fully dictate what I believe and what I can do and who's subject to me. When the gospel is saying, nope, humble yourself because you're subject to me, but I love you enough that I will let you flourish in my presence. See, the gospel is not do whatever you want. And it's not be better, do better, live better. The gospel is not about relativism or legalism. But but the reality is, is that our hearts are so broken that we think our sin is not that big of a deal, especially when we look at our neighbor and say, it's not nearly as bad as that person. Calvin has this great quote that we've been using. The human heart is an idol factory, churning out new idols like a conveyor belt in a manufacturing plant, rolling out new widgets. See, with our hearts the way they are, we are always going to do things for the idea of our own good. We think it's for our own good. That's what sin is. And what Paul is saying is like, how ridiculous is an argument is this? Absolutely ridiculous. What do you mean you think you can be unrighteous? Don't you understand that that's your devastation and that doesn't change anything about who God is? But he doesn't leave it there because he draws us and he's going to continue to draw us back into the gospel. See, this is what the gospel is. Jesus was fully faithful when we were and when we are faithless, he remains faithful and he calls us to be faithful. See, Jesus followed the law perfectly when we could not nor wanted to. Jesus is the truth when we are a liar. See, we prevail when we are judged because Jesus himself did not fail. And this is the beauty of who Jesus is. That that we need God to be faithful and we need it not to be based on our faithfulness or unfaithfulness because then we're really just turning ourselves into God. See, what we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary for God to save us. That's the gospel. But, But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that Yeah, he saves us. 
that Jesus lived the perfect life when we could not live the perfect life, when we did not want to live the perfect life. The gospel is for us. Jesus comes and lives according to the law that we could not keep nor wanted to keep. That Jesus dies upon the cross to take the wrath of God from us. That he says, okay, I took your place. God's justice prevailed. But for us who were in Jesus Christ, it prevailed upon Jesus, not upon us. This is the gospel. It's the beautiful nature of the gospel. And even if that were enough, it's it's enough. It's enough to just say, okay, Jesus took my punishment. I can go to heaven. God says, no, it's not fully it. I'm gonna give you my presence here and now. That even when you're unfaithful, I will remain faithful. Because here's the reality. You will be unfaithful this week. But God will remain faithful in your life. And so I wanna, I wanna close with a few implications. First implication is that the gospel is for you, but it's not about you. See, God chose the Jews. He saves us, but it's not about us and it's not about the Jews. It's Jesus who rescues and redeems you for our good, but it's not about us. It's about God's glory because you and I will flourish in the way that we were intended to flourish when we realize we are his creation and he is the creator God. That is the gospel. The point is not for you this week to say, man, their family has it put together. The point is, is saying, hey, man, their family is a wreck, but something's going on in their life. God's doing something in their life that I cannot understand. Hey, hey, what's that peace? in the midst of everything going on in their life, what's that peace that's so different about them? It's something that's outside of ourselves. It's the work of the spirit in our life. That our biggest prayer would be God work in our life in such a way that only you can get the glory in ways that we could never get the glory. And when we realize that, we we start to embrace humility by recognizing who we are. We are broken, desperate, independent sinners in need of God's grace day after day after day after day. Because the reality is, is there will be times in our life that we care far more about the rules in our life than we do about our relationship with Jesus. And there are gonna be times in our life where we're over here and we say, hey, my sin's not that bad. It's fine. Jesus died for me already, right? I can just go on and live however I want. But humility is the third way. Humility is saying, God, only you and you alone can do this. Because the reality is, as I said earlier, we will be unfaithful this week will be unfaithful to God. And yet God remains fully faithful to us. See, 
we will take credit from God this week. We will take credit on papers that we had no business taking credit for. And yet God receives the glory for it. Even so, he will remain faithful. And one of the ways, it's not about following rules or regulations, and it's not about this relativistic moralism. But it's about what God's doing in our affections. So I just want us to take a moment and I want us to think about, man, what are some of the ways that are stealing my affections from God? What are some of the ways that are stealing my joys? Just spend some time, just ask God in your life right now, what are some of the ways that are stealing some of the joy? Let's take a moment. God has wired us in so many unique and different ways. And I want us to just take a moment and ask God, okay, what are some of the ways that stir my affections for you? What are some of the ways that I find joy in what who you are? It could be reading your Bible. It also could be how you go for hikes. It could be how you're out on in your land. It could be how you play with your kids. It could be going to the aquarium. So ask God, just take a moment and ask God, what are some of the ways that he stirs your affections for him? God, this third way is about how you want to commune with us, how we are sinners in need of your grace. And I pray for us in this room that it wouldn't be about doing better, being better, living better. And it wouldn't be about thinking about you and the way we think about Santa Claus and saying, ah, it's not that bad. I've done enough to make the nice list but that we would be reminded that the gospel is the third way, that we are unfaithful and that your faithfulness remains, that we find joy and life in you. And I pray this week that we'd be a people who find our joy in the things that stir our affections for you. And that we would be a people who are moving away from the things that steal our affections for you love you because you first loved us. Amen. We live in a divided world, but just like the Romans, we are called to unity in Christ as we live on mission in our daily lives. Let this message be an encouragement to you as you go into the spaces and places that God takes you this week. Until next time.